Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajasad, and with me as always is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. Thanks again for tuning in and listening to... Tuning in? Just downloaded the podcast. Thanks for downloading the podcast uh, and checking us out. Um, in case you're unfamiliar with our work, I'm going to ask Ben to plug a little bit of his his uh, recent publications, as well as some special that he's been working on real recently. Go for it, Ben. So you can find my work at Automobile Magazine, Motor Trend, Haggerty Classic Car, and uh, Driving Line. But also, I've been working on a non-automotive project over the last couple of years, actually, and we're running a Kickstarter campaign for it right now. It's called Code 45, and it's a graphic novel about a woman who's working as a subway driver who begins hearing rumors that there are dragons in the tunnels that are terrorizing the night shift. And when she gets moved to night shift, she realizes that everyone around her is using drugs to try and get through their shifts, and it's gotten to the point where they can't tell whether what they're seeing in the tunnels is real or whether it's a hallucination brought on by their habits. So she has to figure out what's real, what's not, and how it ties into a dark secret about her own family's past. The book is available right now on Kickstarter at www.code-45.com. And we're in the last couple of days uh, of the uh, campaign itself. It'll be done 8 a.m. on April 3rd, which is Thursday. So if you could come by, check it out, and pledge uh, for a copy of the book, that would be great. A lot of people from the who, who listen to the podcast already have, and I thank you so much for doing that. I've had so much great feedback from our listeners. And like I said, www.code-45.com. Very cool. That uh, is a bunch of my favorite things. It's first written by you. It's a comic book. It's about dragons and drugs and public transportation. It's It hits every, all of my favorite interests, right? <laughs> well, it was written <laughs> with you in mind, Sammy. Oh, yes, of course. Now, if you want to uh, read some of the work that I've been do- I've done lately, you can go to autotrader.ca as well as Nouveau Magazine and MotorIllustrated.com. This week, we're going to talk about um, a big rugged SUV. As usual, Benjamin has the cool car. So, Ben, take it away with the new Jeep Wrangler. Which one are you driving again? I like how you said, as usual, I have the cool car when not two episodes ago you were driving a Ferrari on a racetrack. <laughs> I mean, but you're always driving the big rugged SUV, the like uh, take over the world mobile. Wow. I don't know what you're trying to say by that, but I had the Wrangler Rubicon, uh, the two-door version. Ah. And I know that uh, in recently, well, not that recently, back in December, we had the Gladiator Rubicon on the show, and neither of us liked it. And we gave it a lot of guff, and it's it's a position that we've had to defend from other automotive journalists who were in love with this truck SUV thing. Uh, I want to say that as much as I disliked driving the gladiator i enjoy the two-door rubicon i think it's a really neat little vehicle and it's really different i mean it's just completely different not just from the gladiator itself but from any other suv on the market sammy well i mean truly the gladiator and the two-door wrangler could not be any further well maybe they could probably be further apart in some ridiculous abstract way but i mean these two are very contrasting vehicles one is ginormous and one is tight and it really seems enthusiast oriented in terms of for off-road fans right yeah it, this is the original jeep in a modern context i mean the original jeep was a small go anywhere military vehicle that had a short wheelbase and was you know sized to fit on trails or in uh, parts of europe during the war that were difficult to access for larger machinery 
Um, Basically anywhere the gladiator could never go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and uh, uh, on our current automotive landscape, it's a huge outlier because it has two solid axles, one at the front, one at the rear. And the Wrangler Rubicon gets upgraded Dana 44 axles, so they're even beefier. It's riding on big, beefy tires. And there's that word again. Uh, and it's this, this podcast brought to you by the beef industry. <laughs> and it, it comes with a, a low-range all-wheel drive system that includes something Jeep calls Rock Track, which is a really, a really low ratio designed to move slowly from one rock to the other uh which is actually pretty mechanical advantage um like that is really useful even in a world that we have now where so many vehicles are using electronic controls for traction Mm -hmm. but um the wrangler is it, it has some electronic stuff too it's got you can disengage the front sway bar uh remotely with a button inside the the vehicle which means it allows the front wheels to move more independently of each other, which gives you more articulation when you're driving on uneven terrain and increases your chance that you're going to find traction. So all that stuff, this is the most hardcore version of the Jeep Sammy. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the model that you drove. This is a Rubicon. Um, did it have the hard top or the soft top? Or it, had it, a hard, had... it had a hard top. And okay. uh, if you'll remember, about a year ago, maybe mm-hmm. 14 months ago, I had a Rubicon Wrangler two-door when I was in Los Angeles for about With a week. With the power roof, right? Uh, no, it had a, it had a soft top. It was a regular, oh, okay. it was a regular, uh, a regular top. But the difference between that Jeep and this one is the one I drove in LA had the turbocharged four-cylinder. Mm-hmm. And the one I drove here in Montreal, well, aside from also the, the huge temperature difference, the one I drove here in Montreal had the V6. So okay. the, the Turbo 4 is an option, and it also requires you to pick up the 8-speed automatic. So it's somewhat expensive because you pay more for the motor. Plus, I think the the, mo- the um, transmission is around $1,800 or $2,000 itself. So it's, it's kind of a double whammy. Whereas if you stick with the V6, you can go for a manual transmission, a 6-speed, or you pay a little more for uh, actually the same price for the 8-speed auto. Okay. So um, now you've driven them in two different um, environments, two different motors. Which motor do you prefer? I mean, is there a preference? Does it matter? Well, I, I had the V6 in the Gladiator, right? Right. And um, but the Gladiator is huge. Does that really like? Does it compare sometimes like to what you've got in the in the Wrangler? Well, I bring it up because the Gladiator's V6 really had me wishing for the Turbo Four. What I really liked about the Turbo Four is the torque, uh, okay. and it combines with something they call E Assist. I think is that what E Torque? Sorry, it's their mild hybrid system that gives you a little bit of a boost off the line. So that kind of makes up for any turbo lag you'd have on the two liter engine. And I think it has two hundred eighty pound feet of torque versus the. 260 that are offered by the v6 and you do feel the difference it's a very responsive motor and it i didn't mind that it was automatic only but when i drove the rubicon two-door with sorry the two-door rubicon wrangler with the v6 i found there was much less of a gap it's okay. uh you do notice the responsiveness and you do hear the v6 working harder than the turbo four does mm-hmm. but other than that i think they're both pretty good engines sammy that's really that makes first of all that makes it tough on the buyer, right? Like, which one should I be getting? Should I be paying the extra for the optional the optional engine, or should I stick with the base one? At least in this situation, it seems okay for you to stick with the base engine, right? Yes. The, well, I think the defining factor might be how much you care about fuel mileage, because I, I mean, if you cared about fuel mileage, would you really be aiming for a Jeep? No, but the difference I believe is two to three miles per gallon, which is not mm-hmm. insubstantial. And in the real world, the V6 is thirsty. 
Yeah. So that's, I mean, I've experienced that in the past. This is a Pentastar V6. It's a very well-known engine by this point. It's been around forever in, in, in almost every vehicle in the FCA lineup now. Um, I think we know it pretty well, right? Yeah. And, and the, what's nice about the four is you get the, roughly the same amount of power, if not a bit more torque, but it doesn't seem to consume fuel at the same rate. So, so you think it's more it's easier to manage your fuel mileage in, in the turbo four? Yeah, but okay. the other the other side of that equation is how much more are you going to have to pay to pay less at the fuel pump later, and what's your break even calculation on how many miles you have to drive for that to make sense? So get out the spreadsheet. Yeah, I'm not necessarily going to recommend it based on engine alone. I think they're both solid choices, but I didn't believe that until I had my most recent Wrangler Rubicon experience. So I'm glad that I had a chance to drive them. Not back-to-back, but at least within similar contexts. One of the major complaints we had was the Gladiator um, Rubicon really felt um, it really felt like it could not main, maintain stability, I suppose is the best way to put it. It, ne- it never felt confident in the snow. So I'm assuming that you had it in the snow, th- this two-door Wrangler in the snow. Maybe not the same conditions that you had the Gladiator in, but... You, can you speak about whether or not you felt a little bit more confident in this than you did the Gladiator? I'm going to straight out say it. The the Rubicon is scary to drive in okay. certain conditions. And I, I don't have a problem saying that. It's not. I did not feel comfortable driving it on the highway when it was cold out and it, or in the rain or the snow. I just did it, it was all over the place and it was a stressful experience. The shorter wheelbase of the two-door Rubicon. Yeah. And I mean significantly shorter because the the, the Gladiator is like 16 inches longer than the four-door Wrangler. <laughs> so now you really chop things down. This short wheelbase, it presents its own um, unique – I don't know how you would say it. it. It informs the driving experience in a unique way. So mm-hmm. when you're on the highway, yes, the front end is still busy because you have that front axle up there, the, the, the solid axle, which means you're not going to have the same level of communication between what's happening – under the wheels and and throw in the huge sidewalls of the off-road tires into this as well. And you're really insulated from what's actually happening. It's going to wander a little bit. But what it didn't do was feel like it was going to leave its lane or feel like it was out of control at any point. Interesting. Where you do notice that kind of issue with the short wheelbase Wrangler is around corners. If you hit a bump at a reasonable rate of speed in a corner with the Rubicon, like let's say on a highway off-ramp or something, the rear end will move. And it'll move laterally to the point where you probably are going to have to intervene. Okay. Um, What else do we want to talk about when it comes to this um, two-door Wrangler? First of all, does it look better as a two-door or a four-door? Two-door, no question in my mind. I I like it a lot. And did you have like one of the, you know, FCA has a lot of creativity with its uh, exterior paint finishes. So what did you have on this thing? I had a color called Mojito, which is actually – it has an exclamation mark at the end. <laughs> what? Mojito? Yeah. But, what uh, is that? Is that – I, I, I just keep – The color is no longer available. Oh. So I don't know. I don't know when they ran out of mojito, but you can't get it anymore. Uh, it's like a bright green. I really thought it was cool. I like the bright candy-colored uh, Wranglers. I think the red looks really nice too. Um I get that baby blue. That's my color, man. I think that's called bikini blue. I'm looking at one right now. It's called bikini pearl. Or or, or are you thinking of like the Levi's jeans kind of blue? Either one, man. Light baby blue. That's my jam. All right. Well, um, I I also like the fact that the short wheelbase car is really easy to drive in the city. Like this is a – it's a wide vehicle, but it's easy to park. 
And uh, in traffic, it's super simple. Like you, you never really feel like you have to, you know, be conscious of where you are in your lane. But aside from that, it, it's not really an issue um, in, in an urban environment. And the other cool thing about the Wrangler is like with the Rubicon, especially everyone is friendly. Like everyone, you you hear about the Jeep wave and people want to wave at you and because they also want a Jeep. But the reality is pretty much everyone wants to talk to you about your Jeep or smile or wave or whatever. And if, mm. if it's bright green, it, it attracts a ton of attention too. So uh, it's it's a kind of, you enter into this whole Jeep's universe with the Wrangler that is unlike anything else except maybe the Miata universe. Except I think maybe the Miata universe is not as universal. <laughs> I do think that the Gladiator gets uh, accepted into that Jeep Wrangler wave as well. That's at least my experience. A lot of the Jeep Wrangler guys were, were very friendly and, um, whenever you were driving by them. Um, but I don't think you get that same experience when you get like a Jeep Renegade or a Cherokee. Oh, no, not at all. Not whatsoever. <laughs> it's exclusively Wrangler related. They, you don't exist to those people at all. No, I'm, I'm driving a Cherokee this week and I can tell you it's, it's, not, it's zero Right. And you're trying, right? Like you're you're you've got half your body out I have the window. All the trying. windows down. I'm wearing a sombrero in the winter. I mean, nothing works. <laughs> How much does this thing cost? So it's really expensive. Surprise, surprise. Oh. Um, the version I drove was around fifty-one thousand. I think okay. it's the the Rubicon starts around like forty-five, maybe a little bit lower. It there are way cheaper versions of the Jeep. You don't have to buy the Rubicon. Um, I've said in the past it would be cool if you could get a vehicle that looked like the Rubicon but didn't have the hardcore suspension so it would just be more fun to drive on a regular basis and then you could go off-road from time to time. But if you're a hardcore off-roading person, there's no other vehicle like this at this price point. Nothing close. I mean, we talked about the Pathfinder uh, a few weeks ago. I think it was about a month ago. Not, not, Not the Pathfinder. What am I saying? The Forerunner, Sammy. Yes. And you, I you was remember, getting confused. Do you yes, remember was... what we said about the, the Forerunner? Um, I remember us not being a fan of the Forerunner and suggesting people just get a Wrangler. Yeah, it, it, it's <laughs> it's surprising to me because uh, the the Wrangler is so much more modern than the Forerunner in terms That's of crazy. It is crazy. The interior, the drivetrain is so much better. I mean, the eight speed automatic compared to that five speed in the Toyota. The five speed is is garbage. It's just not at all suited for a modern vehicle. Uh, and aside from the solid front, if this had an independent front suspension. Yeah. I think that there would be no reason whatsoever to drive a Forerunner, but uh, unless you really cared about reliability, because that's kind of what Toyota's got going for it versus FCA. But uh, even with the solid front axle, I would pick Rubicon over and over and over. Okay, and then you know what? We were talking about this uh, throughout the week, and you um, not only sounded impressed, but you seemed kind of... Um, like if you're on the market for a new car in this class, this would be the – I mean if you're in the market for a new car, this might be one of the main choices for you, right? It just wins me over. I, I don't get it. Like it's it's objectively <laughs> – I it's, don't get it. I love that. <laughs> but it's objectively it's not great. Like right? all these things yeah. that I've been saying that are positive, they come with a big asterisk. And that asterisk is you have to be willing to accept that you're driving a, a body-on-frame vehicle – with solid axles and that comes with a lot of baggage and that baggage means being constantly involved with the driving experience at all times and maybe i'm okay with that because i already own a vehicle that has two solid axles but that vehicle's 32 years old so it's a very different you know i don't my expectations are different right um the idea of paying a lot of money for a modern vehicle like that it's hard for me to get my head around right but you did mention, like, if you were going to buy a new car today, this would be probably among the, the top, the short list. Right? I guess it would be on, on the short list for, like, a year-round vehicle. Yeah, because it's fun all the time. 
Like, I have I also, never... I, I also, maybe I sound like I'm pushing you towards saying that. You don't have to agree with you me. You kind of are. I mean, I'm sorry. I, you don't have to say this, man. If you don't like it, you don't <laughs> Um, no, but like honestly, it's one of those cards that can win you over um, with charm and with making you feel like you're a part of the driving experience. This is some of the things that we really appreciate out of MX-5s and Miatas or, or small sports cars that are really nimble, they're fun, they let you feel everything that's going on. But not every every fun-to-drive car is a sports car. It can sometimes be uh, an SUV, like in this case. Exactly, and, and a lot of it comes down to character. I mean... Most vehicles today don't have any character at all. I hate that phrase, though. Character sometimes means um, drawbacks, like unavoidable drawbacks. And in, True. In, but and I, mean, I don't like that. But character is a way of differentiating yourself from other vehicles. And I think especially in the SUV segment, everything is just same-same. I mean, mm-hmm. for, for a large portion of that segment, it's the, we've talked about in the past how these vehicles, they're designed not for from a, a particular spec, but for a market segment. And whenever you do that, whenever you have a, two vehicles and you decide to build a third vehicle to fit between them, you're not doing that because someone had a passion for it. You're not doing that because you, you have a really cool design idea. You're doing that because you know you can sell that vehicle to a certain type of customer that fits in between two other types of customers. Yeah, and somebody that, sitting on the fence. And that's good business, but very boring. Yeah. So it, the Wrangler doesn't fit anywhere. It's, it is a throwback. It's an anachronism. It's been modernized to the best of its ability. And I think the reason why I enjoy driving it is because I feel like I'm driving. I feel like I'm part of an experience that's bigger than just um, getting behind the wheel of something that's anonymous as a transportation appliance, which is very appealing to me. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, it's I, one like, of those vehicles that are so compromised because they're not appliances. And I think yeah. that's what really makes it appeal, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like the Miata is a very big compromise as well because it only seats two people and it has no roof. And, it, it's, and it's, it's a very super lightweight. And yeah, it's so. super small. So, like, the, you have to want that vehicle to buy it. There's not really a business case that's logical for it. It's because you enjoy driving it. For the Wrangler, it's because you enjoy driving it either because of the experience and image it projects or because you legitimately want to take it off-road, which it's very good at. Okay. But uh, um, I, think, I would yes. not pay $51,000 for it. That's so the that, big... That's actually where I would have uh, directed you next if, if we were going to continue the conversation on the Wrangler. And now we are, so now I have to. Um, <laughs> um, what trim level would you buy for a Wrangler in? That's more, right? It's really hard to say. Um, I also have never had to live with a Wrangler on a daily basis for an extended period of time. I mean, cumulatively, I've spent a few months driving Wranglers in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if, if, if you had to, if that was my only car, I mean, and it wouldn't be because I, I, I'm a maniac. But, like, if that was my only car, I might get sick of things. Like, I like the, the soft top in some ways, but I'm sure I would get tired of the noise. I like the hard top in other ways, but I'm sure I would miss having the soft top open. You know, and... and, and if I'm going to be taking tops on and off all the time, the sport is like is twenty seven thousand, which is a pretty reasonable price, but it's also very bare bones. And I know I would want U Connect, and I know I would want heated seats and stuff like that. So I just don't know which version of the Wrangler I would buy. Okay, so it's it's a case by case situation here. Yeah. Um, did you figure out? It, it, sorry, I can't remember. You said you had the soft top or the hard top. Hard top. 
Hardtop. Okay, so you didn't have to deal with that stupid uh, way of opening the truck. No, I can fully it access the very <laughs> tiny amount of truck space that's inside this vehicle. And I, I mean it's tiny, man. Like, you, if you have three people, you can drive comfortably in the Wrangler because you can sit someone in the middle in the back seat, and it's pretty good. Four people, it's a bit tight. If you have anything other than, like, a few grocery bags, there is no space. And even putting stuff on the back seat to, to kind of um, add to what you put in the tiny trunk is tough because reaching back there is not easy. Okay. All right. That, I mean, I, I always love talking about the Wrangler because it's one of those vehicles that are it, – it, it is an outlier in many ways, but it also suits its population, its fan base really well. And Jeep doesn't, doesn't seem to be pandering to its fan base with this vehicle. So that's what I really like about it. No, I mean, they pander in some ways because, yeah – it's kind of a ridiculous concept in the modern era to have this vehicle still in your fleet. But they're not pandering because they've done their best to make it. It's not like it's not like the Forerunner, which is legitimately just a vehicle Toyota forgot about. <laughs> the yeah. Wrangler is something they've been consistently improving almost every year over the last decade. And I, I can appreciate that. And, and I think FCA has done a really good job at keeping this vehicle relevant. Okay, um, I want to talk about the, the cars that I drove, which um, are far less um, rugged than yours. Although one is considered a crossover, it's a subcompact crossover, it's the Kona Electric. Uh, you remember uh, I was talking about, about this a little bit with the Outlander PHEV? Yes. But I also drove the Chevrolet Bolt back-to-back -back with this vehicle, and it's, um, it's a tough comparison to make when you're driving these two um, pure EVs. Um, and some people might look at that and say they're not competing vehicles. The, you know, Hyundai calls the Kona a subcompact crossover, while the Bolt is a regular compact hatchback. Um, <clears throat> but the two cars share very similar starting prices. They have similar amounts of range, similar engines, similar um, sizes in terms of practicality. So why not compare them? I think it's a very important thing to take a look at. And which car would probably be better, be better to live with um, every single day, especially if you're going to be making the jump into an electric, um, owning an electric vehicle. And first of all, that is a very interesting decision to make, especially in this time, because the ranges of these cars are actually getting better and better. The Kona has, um, uh, sorry, I had the figures here in a moment. The, the Bolt has 259 miles of range, which is very nice. And the Kona is rated for 258. So that's, those are both pretty attractive numbers. You, you, can probably go a couple of days without needing to recharge the vehicle if you're if you have any you know even if you have average range anxiety like I do I didn't find the need to charge it up every single moment I had the car so that's but, that's okay I wasn't always hunting it down but in terms of range anxiety it's important to note that long trips and cold weather are seriously going to cut into those numbers absolutely so in my situation I never saw anything close to the maximum range that either of these cars had mainly because I had them during the winter right and I would say that I lost a good in the bolt it was much more than in the Kona so there's something to be said about battery management software in or, or tuning in the um, Kona and the bolt the Kona always said that it had more range than the than the bolt no matter what even if they were fully charged they would never come back to that that maximum figure so I, I felt a little bit more reassured by the Kona's approach to things. But there are certain things about the Kona that I'm not a big fan of. I'm not sure I like the, 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 the front-end fake grill. I don't know if you've seen this thing, but that's where they hide the charge port on the Kona. And they just basically blacked out the front end of the regular Kona. They put a, a plastic... Um, it looks like... You know that scene in The Matrix when um, the agents make Neo's mouth like 
skin Why color. would you make me think about that scene again? That's nightmare fuel. I know, it's nightmare fuel. That's what I feel like I'm getting at with the Kona. Do you see I, what I mean? I know, I've never been a fan <laughs> of front-mounted charge points because yeah. it means you have to park in a certain way. So I believe that too. So the Bolt has a side-mounted charge point. That makes it a little bit more uh, easily, easily accessible. I also have to add that the Bolt that I had was done up in this absolutely outrageous shade of teal. It was insane, and I loved it. So not only did people know that I was driving um, a funky EV or a new, new-to-market EV, but they noticed me because I had this crazy teal color. Um, in terms of size, I don't know if you'd believe it, but the Bolt... Um, has a tiny bit less space in the cargo area, but when you fold down both second row seats in the Bolt and the Kona, the Chevrolet has more storage space, and there's more passenger space as well in the Bolt as well. So they're, if you look, they're kind of both two passenger vehicles, though, realistically, I think you can fit four people in the Bolt um, pretty easily. I'm not sure about maybe four like four adults. Maybe they'd be okay with like families, small families, like children would be okay in both of these cars. And I think you could probably get a young adult in the back of a, or a teenager in the back of a Bolt pretty easily too. Um, but I have to admit, there's a very different feel to driving these cars. And that's not to say, you know, they handle differently because they kind of do. But what I want to talk about is the the approach to electric vehicles that both cars have taken. The Kona has a lot of options for the driver. There are um, different drive modes, including a special Eco Plus mode, which will limit the um, top speed of the vehicle in order for you to eke out extra range. And there are, I think there are, let me just double check here. There are different, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Paddle, you know, the paddle shifters on the Kona will change the regenerative braking um, settings. And there are, I think, five different um, regenerative braking settings in the Kona, which I think is pretty impressive too. Did you end up using them all or is it more just like a gimmick? Okay, so yeah, I did end up using them all. And that v- most aggressive one is uh, almost like drive, like a one-pedal one driving feel. Which and is available a lot of- on the Bolt, right? Like the Bolt does offer true one-pedal driving. Uh, not in my experience. Well, kind of. I'll explain that in a second. Let me just finish this up for a second. That um, uh, regenerative braking system, it's very, very difficult to get um, comfortable with. Uh, it's not always a one-pedal driving experience, especially when you need to do like an emergency braking situation. And you think you can just let off the brakes, and the, I mean let off the throttle, and the car will start to uh, bring itself to a stop. It doesn't do it fast enough, and then you end up, hitting the actual brakes, and in addition to the the high regen brake um, setting, you end up, like, slamming the brakes. It's insane. Um, okay, the Bolt has one paddle on it. That's it. No two. Just one. And the, that one paddle initiates the harshest form of uh, regenerative braking. So, technically, yes, you're only using one foot, but you're also using your hand as well. That's it. You have to hold that paddle down in order for the for it to work. I thought there was a way to program one one foot driving into the bolt. I couldn't figure it out. There's also a sport mode in the in the car as well, but that didn't do it either. Huh. So it's like the bolt is to me. It made me feel like the bolt was made for um, a, an electric car buyer who isn't up to speed with all of the different settings that an electric car can have. Uh, they just want to get an electric car, and it's the simplest way to do it. You just put it into drive, and you go, and it's great. The Kona, on the other hand, is probably what the enthusiast, the person who 
is shopping for um, a green vehicle is really looking for. And they're doing all the research. They want to make sure they have all the settings that they can sort it out to their um, needs. And the Kona will definitely suit that buyer. In fact, the more I drove the Bolt, the more I wanted to be in the Kona so that I can set up all the features the way I wanted it to be, which well, is, I think, uh, a very interesting, like I said, different, very different approach. What's the price difference between the two vehicles? They both start at around thirty-six, thirty-seven thousand dollars and a fully loaded um, Kona will end up at about $45,000, while a fully loaded Bolt um, is much cheaper. Uh, sorry, let me just double check here is 41,000, 42,000. So you're saying that you would definitely take the Kona out of the two. Uh, sorry. Or, I, or would you take the Bolt with the Kona's customization capabilities? Yeah, if I could have the Bolt, because I do like the upright seating position of the Bolt and the extra, there's a lot of uh, headroom in the Bolt. It doesn't feel like a subcompact inside the vehicle. Um, so I would take the Bolt with that customized powertrain. I think the more you drive the Bolt, you realize you're driving a, a, an EV and there's a lot of um, digital customization and you want to apply that into the uh, driving experience. Uh, one thing that the Kona does definitively better is its interior. There feels like there's a lot less cheap materials and cheap plastics in the Kona. Uh, I'm sorry, yes, in the Kona, it just felt a little bit better um, and it has a nicer infotainment system as well. So. I mean, overall, the Kona is the better the better choice, but the Bolt isn't that far away. If they could get the same customizability, the same flexibility as the Kona has into the Bolt, then that would be a much better vehicle. Okay. Anything else that you want to uh, talk about specifically about the either of these vehicles? I mean, it's so funny because a short while ago, we used to think that green vehicles were really slow and boring cars, but these cars actually feel really quick. They have so much response. That instant on torque is so addicting. I love that. No, I agree. Uh, I found that especially with the Bolt. It's uh, It feels much quicker than it really is. And that's that's the best kind of quickness to have because that means you're less likely to get in trouble with local law enforcement. Well, yeah, you'll immediately know that you you stepped you, you stepped on the throttle a little bit uh too quickly or too aggressively, you immediately know that you'll never be caught off guard with that. The other thing um, that I find when I drive an electric vehicle is I end up modifying my driving behavior in order to increase the range. So I accelerate yeah. much slower than I normally would. So that's just kind of better for everyone all around. Yeah, of course. And see, with that in mind, the Kona has that Eco Plus set setting so that it ensures that you have that kind of graduated takeoff that uh, that the EPA kind of recommends, which is insane. I think it's like a ridiculous zero to 60 time of like... Or, or passing through an intersection in a couple of seconds, which is insane to me. Um, it, you know, it's it's funny because that that mentality that I adopt after driving a hybrid or an electric car, it always disappears. Like, I remember a few weeks ago when I was driving the Polestar version of the XC60. Right. I, I, I went, I made a, a major effort to try and see, you know, if I could constantly just keep it in electric. And I was trying to figure out where the boundaries were for it to kick on its gas engine, and where whereas... Um, I, instead of just staying on battery all the time. And I was like, you know what? I'm getting pretty good efficiency with this. Maybe it, the next vehicle I drive, I could maintain these habits and I could improve my own personal fuel efficiency. And within like <laughs> two hours of having picked up a regular gas vehicle, that mentality was completely gone. Like I was back to the normal way I drive. And I'm not saying I drive very aggressively or that I'm always hammering the gas, but I was definitely not as gentle as I was in the Polestar. What do you think triggers this feeling? Is it the sound of a gas engine that makes you go, I like to hear that sound a little bit more, let's push it, or is it just, yeah. I think it's the lack of like the instant feedback 
because with the EV, you always have the battery range showing at any given time, and it responds <laughs> very quickly if you mess around. And in a gas car, it's not really like that. It's more, it's more like way more fudge factor. <laughs> so it's, I think it's that instantaneous feedback, and the, and it's also a challenge. It's like I have a limited amount of battery. I want to see how much of that I can get. Whereas with gas, I have an unlimited amount of fuel because we live in a petrol economy. So like, it, just, it just doesn't matter ultimately. Right. Actually, I want to bring up another feature that Kona has about its regenerative braking is that when you trigger the regenerative braking, a little like um, a little bubble pops up on the on the gauge cluster that tells you how much more range you're getting um, from this regenerative um, function right now. And I think it's this really funny, like, high score mentality that you end up having. Like, oh, I, I got an extra mile out of that. Let me see if I can if I can push it a little oh, bit exactly. more. Exactly. And I'm there, like, that's so funny. There used to be hybrids that would have little leaves. Was it Ford yeah, that had little didn't leaves? Yeah, mean anything, But they right? would grow if you, if you drove a certain way, and they would die and wither if you drove another way. And, like, that didn't super work for me. Like, I, I wasn't attached to those, those digital leaves on the dashboard. But for some yeah. reason, the, the actual hard numbers do have an impact on me. Yeah, so for maybe, sure. The actual information is far more um, useful than... The the digital representation of how much we're improving the the, the environment. I, I will say this: in my Grand Wagoneer, it, with the original engine, the fuel consumption was so dramatic that I could see the effect on the fuel gauge as I was driving when I drove more aggressively. It almost in real time. You can watch it. I could drop. watch it drop drop. So I could that did have an effect on my behavior to the point <laughs> where. I'm currently spending like twenty thousand dollars swapping in an LS engine. Oh my so God. that's how that's how much of an impact that had on my behavior. Okay. Um, so I mean, it, it is we're we're slowly reaching this moment with electric vehicles where they're really becoming compelling um, vehicles to live with every single day. And I did manage to find you know charge stations everywhere. I have one of those uh, charge point cards as well. And I have an app on my phone that allows me to pay for my charging as well. So I'm looking forward to to testing out more electric vehicles. I'm I'm I used to be very anxious uh, when it comes to electric vehicles and the range. It's like my worst nightmare to be stuck somewhere with a car that can't go anywhere. Um, and I'm slowly losing that um, fear. I don't know if I've just suddenly become careless in life, or if I think these vehicles are slowly becoming easier to live with. Well, uh, speaking of easier to live with, um, if you, is there anything else that you want to say about the, these cars before we, before we move on? Nope, that's it. Okay, I was just going to say, uh, easier to live with. If you want to make your podcast experience with us easy to live with, and you want to hear everything that we've done, because I know um, there's what 180 episodes now uh, sitting out there in the in the cloud. You can find us at www.unnamedautomotivepodcast.com, and all of our episodes are hosted there. But you can also find links to the the podcatcher of your preference, whether that's iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Google Play Music, whatever it is. Spotify, it's all there. You can just click on those buttons and it'll take you right to our our podcast on your podcatcher. Um, Sammy, if people want to get in touch with us, how would they do that? Well, if they're on the website, they can do it really easily. There's a contact form there. You fill it out and it heads to our inbox. It's easy. Uh, additionally, you can reach out to us on social media. You can find me on Twitter. My username is at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. And you can find Ben on Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin. Additionally, uh, yes. So, no, sorry, go on. Additionally, you can email us the old school way. It's Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com. And if you uh, wanted to tune in next week and hear us talk about some more cars, Sammy, what are you going to be? What are you? What are you driving right now? 
I'm not driving anything right now, so we're going to be talking about uh, something I drove in the past, which is going to be exciting. I'm sure I'll pull it out of my out of my memory banks. Wow, that's that's a great setup for people who are undoubtedly super excited about next week's episode. <laughs> I'm going to be talking about something I'm driving right now. It's the Jeep Cherokee that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. I hadn't driven a Cherokee in quite a long time, so I it's been an interesting experience to see where it fits into the hyper competitive world of almost midsize SUVs. And I've got a lot to say about it. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Additionally, dear listeners, if you have some questions, don't hesitate to reach out to us on those aforementioned uh, channels. It, um, we love to answer your questions. We love to talk about whatever's on your mind. So yeah, it doesn't have to be cars. I mean, if you have a deeply personal question about Sammy's past, bring it on. Yeah, go for it. So thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye-bye.